Hello and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to indigenous artists, creators, writers, musicians, movers and shakers, and culture bears, people in the community that are doing great things for the communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of CANA, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our indigenous communities from around the region and country. So we're gonna go off script again this week. Um, you know, June is a, a month that is uh, sort of an education focused uh, here in the Northern Plains. Uh, currently at the University of South Dakota, you have the Oscar Howsam Art Institute, which focuses on um, indigenous high school students. And we have the Northern Plains Summer Art Institute, which also focuses on indigenous high school students, but also college students as well. And in spirit, their sister programs, both born out of the inspiration of Oscar Howe, but also the inspiration of John Day, the Dean of Fine Arts at the University of South Dakota, who, along with Robert Penn and Alta Dela Cruz Penn, um, started the Oscar House Mar Institute in the summer of 91, about eight years after the passing of Oscar Howe. And, you know, it's, I think we've also come to the point um, in this series that it's time we, we rewind a little bit and sort of go back to the beginning of some things. And what I mean by that is we really can't get through a, a podcast episode with a visual artist, a, a 2D visual artist, who, um, who, where Oscar Howe is a reference. And, you know, the, the, the great thing about the both summer institutes is that they focus both on, with lectures, current uh, working artists, but also in the case of the Northern Plains Summer Institute, we, we're focusing on uh, indigenous art history, which is a huge benefit for young people. Um, you know, and it, it sort of goes to the core of what this podcast is. Yes, of course, um, we want to share an indigenous perspective on the world through the eyes of artists and creative people. But we also want to inspire indigenous youth. And so that's why we do this. And I think now we're at a point now where we do need to rewind and maybe focus a little bit on Oscar Howe himself. But I hesitate to tell the story of Oscar Howe uh, through through my lens, through my voice, because I didn't know him. And it, it doesn't feel appropriate for me to find a scholar to bring them in to talk about Oscar Howe, because ultimately it would just be a history lesson from a scholar and probably a well a well documented lesson. But the thing is, is that for 15 years, uh, told the story masterfully to um, probably 200 summer art institute students over 15 years and to hear that story to hear him tell the story was so full of life you felt like you were there because again they were close they were friends um and it was only appropriate for him to tell that story and i will say if if it weren't for john day we probably wouldn't be talking about oscar howe today in a whole lot of context and who knows where uh I would be where you would be where the programs would be so yeah now when i was in the program and i was a staff person uh we decided that we were going to start documenting uh the programs starting i believe in 2000 and we at the time i was sort of an aspiring uh, filmmaker uh I, I bought a little uh, jvc camera um you know one of those little camcorders at best buy i bought it from the from 
the clearance section because I had no money, but I just wanted to start filming. And in 2002, um, I had this, this little camera and I was recording everything within the program. And when it came to the Oscar Howe lecture, I brought my camera into, um, into the, the room where John Day was talking and I recorded him. And I will say that I think over the course of probably five, six years, uh, I was able to capture him telling the story of Oscar Howe, I think three times. And so I have three recordings and those are digitally preserved as best as something 20 years old can be digitally preserved. And so you're going to listen now to uh, telling of the story of Oscar Howe by the person that professionally really knew him the best and who killed tell the story uh, like no one else and that's John Day um, so there was a lot of work to sort of bring the quality of this audio up to where it's probably um, broadcastable it, again uh, the gears and everything um, of this little camcorder uh, picked up a lot of excess noises so there's a lot of work so just a heads up the audio quality is the best um, on this recording. However, the content is the finest content we've had on this podcast. So uh, sit back, enjoy um, the telling, uh, the sharing of Oscar Howe by John Day. Most of the major Northern Plains artists uh, have come from the Oscar Howe Institute. People like Art Green, uh, and Bobby Penn were all students of the Oscar Howe Institute. And we started that tradition in 1992 when Robert Penn came, uh, 91, when Penn came to uh, USD and he was able to bring us the inspiration for how this should be done along the lines of Dr. Howe's legacy. And so we are now the next, next generation. And that's already beginning to happen. A number of our students who are alums of the Institute here have gone on to um, the major uh, universities and are beginning their careers now, getting a lot of attention. We have a cast of a wide net of talk about alums. We talk about alums both from the teaching uh, staff and from the student staff. And so Mr. Kamaya is now after receiving two degrees from USD and now uh, doing pursuing his MFA in pain at the University of Oklahoma, one of the finest schools in the country. McCalhoun is an alum. Um, so, you're part of that kind of tradition, I want you to understand. Uh, today, I want to tell you a little bit about who Oscar Howe was. Nobody should get out of here without appreciating what the man did and what he stood for and continues to stand for. Oscar Howe is, by almost everybody's assessment, one of the five people most influential in the development of Native American online movement, and by extension, a Native American art today. Okay? I don't care who you ask, they're going to pick off five people, Oscar Howe is going to be among that five. He was that important, both as an artist and role model, but as a teacher and as a revolutionary. Uh, to a great extent, he was the right person, at the right place, at the right time. But that doesn't mean that he accomplished this in an easy way because he went through a tremendous amount of hardship throughout his whole life, facing everything from racism to the bad health, and he persevered, and in persevering, he kept a wonderfully positive attitude. I had the privilege of knowing Oscar Howe 
Nobody was really Oscar Howe's boss. Um, but I did get to know him as a person and understand and continue to be amazed by what this man stood for and the strength of this, of this individual. Hopefully, by telling the story of his life before going in and looking at his artwork, uh, we'll kind of help you understand how special an opportunity he's made available to you. Um, Oscar Howe was on this faculty for 25 years. And um, we have a special relationship with him because of that. We own the largest collection of Oscar Howe works in the world. We also run not only this institute, but a whole series of programs associated with the Oscar Howe Memorial Association. And we have the Oscar Howe Archives, which means that we're a research center for Oscar Howe. Uh, really pretty important things going on here in association with Oscar Howe. Um, Oscar was born in 1915, a long time ago, and you would expect it. He is a full-blood Yankee maid, uh, Nakota speaker, born on the Crow Creek Reservations at Joe Creek in 1915. Well, 1915 seems a long time ago. You have to put it in perspective because it was only 53 years, 52 years, since the founding of that Crow Creek Reservation. Prior to that, the people that Oscar was around were around, people that brought Oscar up, the people that he was living with in an intimate way, family and friends in the small community knew the old ways. People who had fought at the Bighorn, people who were still alive and part of the old tradition that did, you know, that had grown up not knowing white. Uh, that, you know, the Laramie, Fort Laramie Treaty in 51 was the first substantive contact, and then the Indian Wars precluded that until, you know, a, you know, a little, uh, the, the uh, wounded knee. He knew people who had survived the wounded knee, people who had fought, who were bighorn people who had under the buffalo in pre-reservation days, and these were his teachers. He was born into that traditional family, and it was an important traditional family. His great great grandfathers on both sides were hereditary chiefs of the Yankee peoples. And one was Bone Necklace and the other was White Bear, and they were both distinguished spokespeople, signatories of treaties, and recipients of awards for valor uh, from the United States Congress. These were very substantial, important people. His grandfather, his, his uh, paternal grandfather, uh, whose name was Anshpeshni, uh, gives me an opportunity to kind of touch on something you probably know, but it is a poignant piece of, of history that when the people were brought to the reservation, bearing their Nakota names, bureaucrats, in order to manage the people, translate, had people translate those names. And so especially, which is I as well as I can tell, pretty much untranslatable. They translated the don't know how, and hence the how name. They later added the E. I think that must have been some English influence uh, or some pretentiousness. Who knows? But Oscar is Indian name. He has two Indian names. Uh, the one that most people know uh, is 
Mazuha Hokushina, which basically, depending on who you talk to, translates to trader boy, at least that's one of the translations that Oscar uh, accepted. And it was a meaningful name. As you know, the names mean something. They're not only symbolic, but spiritual. And I have always thought, and others have agreed, that Trader Boy was a very good name for this man who, for all his life, consciously traded between two cultures, the traditional Indian culture and the mainstream uh, dominant culture. And by his own and many other people's assessment, took the best of both of these cultures to try to marry them together. Uh, who live in the 20th century and now the 21st century, taking the best from the Indian ways and putting the best from the dominant cultural ways. The other name that I recently discovered uh, that he was given, probably later in his career, was Itikan, uh, which uh, translates to master from Mr. Kilsmall's assessment, but also says there's another you know, kind of way of translating that. Boss. And Oscar was a very, very strong person, and he was kind of a boss. And so uh, they both of those names are the So he grew up uh, as a first language speaker. At this point in the recording, the 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 footage starts to flicker, and the audio is, is actually. Um, uh, you can't really understand anything that's being said, but essentially Dean Day talks about um, Oscar Howell returning home to his grandmother and uh, he's having skin issues and they're addressing those issues. Uh, but soon uh, the recording comes back online and we continue on with the recording. Sounds to me, taking that for three twice a day, use this, this very strong lye soap and wash yourself with that, let that set, and jump into this creek every day, twice a day. You can imagine that that might have uh, been very uncomfortable at certain times of the year, and miraculously, after two years, he was uh, he was cured. He went back to the Indian school, where he was a very good student, particularly in mathematics, but there was no art form. Art was not a lot, and it was still a period of assimilation. And he graduated from grade school at the age of 18. He started late. He had this, you know, this period that he was out of it for longer to get through. And so when he graduated, here it is, what? The middle of the Depression, dustful days in South Dakota, on an Indian reservation. A lot of opportunity, right? So when he did, he got a part-time job with the uh, South Dakota uh, Department of Transportation, building roads, etc. Uh, and Developed the Roses. So the BI decided that they should send him where? To the Southwest. That's good for your health. Send him to the Southwest. And so, as what would have he arrived at Santa Fe to attend high school, at the Santa Fe Indian School, three years after the revolutionary first program was developed by a very special teacher, Dorothy Dunn, to instruct Indian people in art. And not only in art, art that is derived from their own tradition. This is the beginning of a change in government philosophy from assimilation to the idea that reconnecting with the culture was the best thing that the Indian people could do, the best way that the government could help Indian people. And so it was a fairly enlightened period. And so she created a school which she ran for four or five years 
which took in only 50 students a year. And so the competition was keen, and Indian people came from all over the United States. There were quite a few from the Northern Plains, but not as many as you would expect from the Southern Plains and from the Southwest. During those five, four or five years of Sheetland Institute, over 40 major Indian artists who went on to major reputations who defined Indian, the first settings of Indian modern art, graduated from Indian. So Oscar knew Kathleen of Lombardi, who was a classmate of hers, who became a distinguished woman artist who is uh, from one of the Pueblos. And he knew uh, Alan Howison, who again was a teacher who had developed a major international reputation, uh, who was a Chiricahua Apache. He knew all of these important people. Those were his classmates. So in a way, he was among the most blessed and gifted people of his time in a very permissive environment, not unlike what you guys have here. Okay, it was a workshop environment where they did murals, where they did drawings, where they learned painting. But there was a philosophy, and I'll show you a painting in here. The philosophy was that if Indian people were going to paint, you know, they weren't painting for cultural purposes, although there is always that, you know, in but they were painting for economic development. They wanted to show people that you could make a living. You could make money doing art. And who's going to buy that art? White people didn't buy it. So you had to be, as anybody who has ever sold anything knows, you got to know your market. And so they decided that, you know, in religion, that what was going to sell and what, in fact, did sell was watercolor paintings on paper of traditional Indian subject dances, hunts, things that went on in, in the traditional uh, communities, etc. And, as a matter of fact, it was wonderfully successful. Oscar and his generation have chose Chicago, New York, Washington, D.C., Paris, London, and, and um, other places around the world. He, they all sold works, too. And they were one, another one of the things I found really uh, personal touching personal contact is that when he sold his first work of art, he learned one of the lessons every artist needs to learn, uh, and that is that there's always a middleman. And so he sold his first work of art for 50 cents to Santa Fe Indian School for 25. And so he understood that there was a middleman all the time. Uh, when you have your, uh, your show, we don't take any percentage. So make your best deal with people who want to buy. So Oscar graduated at the age of 18, um, excuse me, at the age of 23, from high school, as salutatorian of his class. And he came back to South Dakota, and he got a job teaching, where else? At the Pure Indian School, far room and board. And he taught there for a year, and then one of the things that I think we all have to recognize is that there are opportunities even in the worst of times. And so there was a great, there were two great opportunities associated with very bad things that Oscar House took advantage of. I think that's a very important lesson to learn. And it's one that he you know, kept reiterating. And, and the, the, the first one was that in these depression days, there were federal programs for artists. And the South Dakota 
uh, Works Progress Administration, UOWPA, hired a whole lot of artists, paid $60 a month, which was, you, you can live on those days. You're going to get 50 bucks just to, for two days. Okay. Um, anyhow, they get 60 bucks. It was good work. But it also involved you in doing public arts projects. So Oscar Powell did several murals. He illustrated uh, books. Um, and he made, you know, he got some training and sort of things. They learned that art from him would be an economically viable career for him. He learned to make art that would sell. But also he learned that you had to between yourself and choosing your tradition. And so Oscar Howe worked for the WPA. And then another thing came along in that Second World War, and he was drafted. Uh, the man was uh, a warrior. He fought in Germany, Italy, and France. He was an artillery uh, sergeant, and he saw a lot of public fighting. He was part of the occupational forces uh, in Germany. And before he was discharged, he met his wife-to-be, um, then a 16-year-old young German girl who spoke no English. He came back to this country, and another good thing happened to him uh, that he took advantage of, another lesson in the ability to take advantage of opportunities that are there. He took advantage of the GI Bill and went to school at Dakota Wesleyan University for his Bachelor of Fine Arts degree. At that moment in time, a lot of, of young service members flooded America's colleges and universities and redefining them from kind of stodgy academic places to places that were really exciting to be. Dakota Wesleyan was one of those exciting places. And as a measure of that, uh, there were some very good young faculty members, one of whom later ran for president of the United States as a Democratic candidate in the 60s, and that was George McGovern, who was a close friend of Oscar Heidi House for the rest of their lives. Oscar uh, entered the second annual uh, American Indian painting show at the Film Book, uh, which for about 20 years was the dominant Indian art show in, in America. And he won the grand prize, which was 350 bucks uh, for a painting called Sue Boaters. And he was able then to bring Heidi over here and they were married in Chicago in 1948 and moved to Dakota Wesley at Mitchell, where shortly thereafter he began designing the Carn Palace murals. Now you all, you know, you all know that kind of Mitchell is about you know, the Carn Palace. And as hokey as the Carn Palace is, when you think about having to make art out of Carn Palace, you know, he made the most of it and he had a brilliant touch for that. And for 23 years he did that. And he fit, that helped him really fit into the community. Um, at the same time, he made a connection with the University of Oklahoma. So he was able to go to the University of Oklahoma and earn his Master of Fine Arts degree. So here is an Indian person, uh, very unusual that they would, that an Indian person of his generation would have a bachelor's degree. They are much lesser to have a Master of Fine Arts, which is like PhD. That's the term that they do. So only he and Joe Herrera, maybe one or two other Indian people of that generation, were qualified to teach at the University of Iowa. And so in 1957, after having taught at Pure High School for three or four years, he came to the University of South Dakota. 
was not an easy transition. I gotta be honest with you. Um, you know, University of South Dakota really didn't know what to do with the Nostra Town. The art faculty were, if I can say anything uh, about that art faculty time, they were duller than dirt. And their idea of what art was was that they wanted these people to be illustrators for John Morrell. And here comes Oscar Howe doing cutting edge American Indian art. Well, that was just too much for them. Washington got marginalized. When the art department changed and they brought in really modern people, they marginalized him because he was doing Indian art. So he never had a really easy time of it. But he, again, made the most out of the opportunity. He was probably the most celebrated Indian artist of the generation during his lifetime. Uh, he won all 15 or more grand prizes, and he was awarded the Wade Phillips Trophy for contributions to American Indian art, which is like the Oscar for Indian art. Uh, he, uh, he really made a tremendous difference here. He started the Oscar House Summer Art Institute in about 61. He continued to actively teach until about 1980 when he retired after 25 years. He was struck by a heart attack in the early 70s, bounced back from that, and got Parkinson's disease, and he died in 1983. But his art is owned in major collections all over the United States. And when you go down to the Jowson on Saturday, you will see a major but small exhibition of Oscar Howe's works uh, paired with uh, Alan Hauser's work. And so you will see in a major museum a featured exhibit of this man's work. Uh, he is a person that you can learn a tremendous amount about the uh, information available, and it will make a great deal of difference to you. His principles uh, were. I should let me say one other thing about him before we move in. His, his, uh, his primary principle was that Indian artists had to be free to move away from that patron driven Indian art style that somebody else decided was Indian art. And even though that was very successful and he made considerable money selling those things, he felt that Indian artists should be able to be free to do self expression. Uh, true to their Indian tradition, true to whichever starting point they wanted to take, but that Indian people could not be dictated to. So one of the things you're going to see in here is a letter that's mounted in the gallery, which he wrote to Gene uh, Snodgrass King, who was a registrar at the Philbrook, an old-time friend. In 1958, after having won the Philbrook, Philbrook exhibition year after year after year, he entered a piece that was pretty experimental, uh, War and Peace Theater. It was pretty, pretty near totally abstract. And while we got into the show, it did not win in the war. And so he wrote, he called Jeannie and said, why give me? And she said, well, the committee felt it wasn't in Great pain, but it wasn't in So he wrote this letter over there, which brings tears to my eyes every time I read it. Uh, he challenged those people in very, you know, very direct words about how they could dictate Indian people, what Indian art was. You know, and so he really took them. The one page letter he made manifesto for modern Indian art that freed up, you know, it changed the world. And several years after that, they closed the Santa Fe Indian School and reestablished 
dancing to American Indian art. Oscar was asked to be the first president of IAIA. Turned him down because one of the things about Oscar is he was rooted to this place. This was his land. And even when he went down to Santa Fe Bay to Oklahoma, there was always been the intention of him back here to develop an art and plain school of art. And when you're a part of that tradition, uh, there is a character that life comes up. And there is that, you know, there are subjects and there are colors and thinking about our experience on our modern planes and the heritage that you go to that through whether you know, through abstraction, whether it be homework or beadwork or, or historic books and what have you, that are an essential part of what it means to make modern planes are. I hope you can see that in Oscar's work. One other thing. Uh, as you read or talk about Oscar Howe, people who know less than you will say that he was influenced by Cubism. The first thing you need to remember is that really pissed off Oscar Howe. He did not like that at all. Because that is not true. There is uh, there is a tradition in Martin Plains art of abstraction, linear abstraction. And he had all kinds of backup for that. And that's where I'm coming from, not from Cubans. Well, scholars being what they are and wanting to pigeonhole people, they will continue to say, well, you know, he was in Europe. So he had to see this Cuban stuff, yeah, between 1942 and 1945, while you're firing off, you know, candidates, you're going to go to museums, whether which are all closed, and he didn't see Cubism over there. And then he said, well, you know, he studied Cubist art and art history, and that's true, but not in depth, and his style was already established by the time that he was being encountered with it. And I have that from, directly from his teachers at the University of Oklahoma. I said, this man's not a Cubist. He did exactly the opposite of the Cubist. He took a flat traditional style and he brought dimensions to it. Cubist did the opposite. So anybody tries to tell you he's a Cubist, you can partly tell them that no, he wasn't. And uh, I hope that all of you see enough traditional art uh, that you'll see where his, where his work comes from. This collection is only the show is only a part of our collection. Um, it has a variety of works. It's not organized in any way, chronologically, etc. It just gives you a good sense of the scope of the man from his very early work through to uh, his most abstract. So at this point, I think we can walk through there, spend a few minutes, so make a few comments there. We'll probably have a few comments. And then this gallery is open every day. I want to thank the family of the late John Day for giving me their blessing to share this with you. Um, and, and I want to say it's sort of implied with all these episodes, you know, that the that the material is the property of Eleven Warrior Arts, um, and especially this this recording as well and so any use of this material uh, needs to come through uh, the exclusive written permission of 11 warrior arts especially something kind of as special as this but i mean that being said you know um i, I hope you've enjoyed this and i hope you listen to this and share this with those who who need to to hear the story of oscar howe um and in my opinion it can't be told any better than john day 
they knew each other for, for a very long time, and John Day carried that message and that awareness of Oscar Howe uh, for the rest of his life. And you really can't have a better friend than that. So it's, I, I haven't listened to this recording in many years. Um, so going through these, these tapes uh, was quite an experience and a wonderful one at that. Um, but yeah, you know, I think it's important moving forward that we, we understand um, who Oscar Howe was and the importance of John Day carrying that legacy forward. And that shouldn't be forgotten as well. So that's it. That's the episode for this week. Um, join me next week as we, we continue on this theme of, of education and uh, perspective uh, through this month of learning. And I think you're going to like what's coming up next week as well. So that does it. Uh, I'm Joe Williams. Uh, you can find me at Canada, that's C-A-N-A-A, uh, Creativity Among Native American Artists, on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, at the uh, Plains Art Museum website, plainsart.org. Uh, and at that website, you can find our uh, current exhibitions, um, our past programming, and these podcast episodes. So that's it. Um, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for taking your time listening to really is one of the most important stories and perspectives from one of the most important voices uh, in, especially in my life, but for, for this. So thank you. You take care and we will see you next time.